First Corinthians chapter 10, I want to read the first 13 verses. I want you to notice in my Bible, perhaps in yours too, that the heading for this paragraph says warnings. The Bible is filled with warnings. There are a lot of warnings. It starts already in the Garden of Eden. And it continues on until the book of Revelation. But these warnings this morning are not, are not like the warnings we're used to. They're not like weather warnings. When there's a, when there's a weather situation, we get a, a warning. On my phone comes, there's an emergency, there's a weather alert. That kind of warning comes very timely because you know, it's, it's happening right now. It's happening someplace. This could happen here. We get warnings on the freeway. I mean, up this morning it said that we should not text and drive. There's a big sign that warns us about what's going to happen if we do that. Another warning said that, it's, that speeding kills. Another flashing light along the road. Warnings, we're used to them. But I want you to notice that the text we're going to read are warnings from Israel's history. We're talking about warnings that were given many, many years before this was written. It's from their history. But I hope that you see, and I'm guessing that we will, I'm, I'm quite certain that we will see how these warnings, even though from the, they were from the ancient past, and Paul wrote about them, they are as up-to-date as the weather warnings we get today. So I want to begin reading at verse 1, read the first 13 verses. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We shall not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's God's reading to us, his word to us, the warnings from ancient Israel from the New Testament. I want you now to turn to our Old Testament reading, which is our text for this morning. And that's found in Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25. We're going to be reading the entire chapter. It's a rather short chapter. A little bit of the context. So the Israelites were at the doorstep of the promised land. They were across the Jordan River from Jordan. This is the second time they were there. The first time, you may remember, when they came to that point, Moses sent 12 people, one from each tribe into the land to spy it out to see if it was the land that they were expecting, if they could conquer that land. Ten people said, no, we cannot. Two people said, yes, we can. When the vote came through, of course, the majority ruled. God was extremely angry. 
because he was going to deliver the people into that land. He was very angry. And so he turned them back into the wilderness so that that entire generation that didn't believe he could carry them into the promised land died. Every one of them was buried. Their bodies were scattered across the desert. We just read that in the New Testament warnings. So there at that point, this is a whole new group of Israelites, the next generation. That's where our story begins. That's where we carry on. Continue on, rather. Verse 25, chapter, verse, chapter 25, verse 1. While Israel was staying at Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, so Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and God's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then the Israelite men brought then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was zealous, as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby, daughter of Zerah, tribal chief of a Midianite family. And the Lord said to Moses, Treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them, because they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the affair of Peor, and their sister Cosby, the daughter of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of Peor. That's God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing on it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. This morning we're looking at warnings. Warnings from ancient history. Warnings that sadly the Israelites did not hearken to, did not listen to. Lord, we see the results in front of us. Help us, Lord, so that we may listen intently and closely to your word. May it speak to us this morning. And so, Father, we ask for ears that are opened, minds that are opened, hearts that are opened, and ready to hear you speak to us through this unusual passage. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At a dinner party, several of the guests were arguing about who is more trustworthy, men or women. No woman, said one man, mockingly, can keep a secret. 
Oh, I don't know about that, answered a female guest. I've kept my age a secret since I was 21. Oh, you'll let it out someday, the man insisted. I hardly think so, responded the lady. When a woman has kept her secret for 27 years, she can keep it forever. A perfect example of a no longer secret, secret. In the verses that we've just read together about God bringing his people from the bondage and the slavery of Egypt to the freedom of a promised land, we see, we see another no longer kept secret. Indeed, it seemed that everyone and his brother knew about the journey of God's chosen people. It was not a secret. Immediately after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, Miriam and Moses sang a song that predicted that this would happen, that the secret would be let out. Listen to what they're saying. This is from Exodus chapter 15. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until your people pass by. They predicted what would happen. Rahab the prostitute from Jericho affirmed the Canaanite woman's reaction when she said to those two spies that she had hidden under the flax upon her roof, she said, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So while it seemed that every inhabitant of Israel, or of Canaan rather, was, was shaking with fear, it was the nation of Moab that especially dreaded the masses of the Israelites who were encamped on their doorstep. They were terrified about Israel. They were terrified about her God because they had heard they had heard how, how she had won a total victory over the mighty Amorite king, Sion and Og. They were afraid. No weapon, it seemed. No army seemed strong enough to defend the land of the Moabites and the Moabite people or their lives or their possessions. And so in fear and in, in desperation, they frantically looked for a way to stop Israel. Now, because they were a pagan nation, the first thing that came to their minds were supernatural powers. We're talking here now about forces of darkness. We're talking about spirits and demons. We're talking about, about curses and spells. It's an interesting story, it is. Balak, the king of Moab, in a knee-jerk reaction, purchased the services of Balaam, who was the best witch doctor in all of the land. They asked him, his directive then, was to put a curse, a curse on Israel. But God had other plans for him. And some unique ways of showing him those plans. Here's what happened. The donkey that Balaam was riding on saw something in the road that Balaam didn't see. Now the Bible tells us what it was. It was an angel. And so she, the donkey, when she saw the angel, 
turned off the road into the field and refused to go back up on the land, go back up on the road. That is until Balaam beat her with his whip. A little ways farther down the road, the donkey saw the angel for the second time. This time, this time the angel was standing through two, in between two stone walls, bridges maybe, or, or, or a gate on either side. And when the angel was stood in the way of the, of the donkey, the donkey squeezed over to the side as close, as close to the brick wall as she could. And she pinned Balaam's leg between her rib cage and those rough stones. And so Balaam beat her again. Third time the donkey saw the angel, she lay down in the road and refused to move one step farther. This time, this time, when Balaam beat her, God caused the donkey to talk to Balaam. She asked him, what have I done to make you beat me these three times? And then, then the Bible tells us, God opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel in the road. He saw what the donkey had seen all along. Now when Balaam finally reached the place from which he was supposed to curse Israel, God opened the mouth of Balaam, not the donkey this time, and caused him to pronounce blessings upon the Israelites instead of curses. And the Bible tells us that Balaam uttered these blessings against his own will. And of course against the will of Balak, the king who had hired him. And Balak was terribly upset with Balaam, so he refused to pay his curse fee. So this first attempt, this first attempt on behalf of Moab and Balaam to destroy the people of Israel, the people of God, failed miserably. In fact, it failed not just once. The Bible tells us they tried it four times over and it failed four times over, four times in a row. But the resourceful Balaam came up with a plan B. If, if he surmised military might didn't work, and if invoking mystical powers wasn't successful, then, then let's seduce Israel away from her God and his might with sexual immorality and idol worship. His plan was revealed for us in Numbers chapter 31, the 16th verse. Read that sometimes, it's very interesting. Why do you suppose, why do you suppose Balaam picked this option? And he had a lot of options to pick from. Why did he pick this option, do you think? Well, he picked it because he knew something about God. In fact, it appears he knew more about God than the Israelite people did. He knew that God was a jealous God. He knew that God tolerated no rivals. He knew that God loved holiness and that he hated sin, that he punished evil. So he surmised if, if he could get Israel to commit an obvious sin, and Balaam had, had every expectation that they would, then God himself would do to Israel what Moab and Og and even Balaam himself were not able to do. Now as much as Balaam's first plan failed, the second one succeeded. It succeeded greatly. In fact, it was enormously successful. I mean, if there was one thing this wicked Balaam knew, it was the weakness of the flesh, and he knew exactly, exactly how to exploit that weakness. He had the leaders of Moab send attractive young women, women who didn't know God, who didn't serve God, he had them send them to the camp of Israel. Now these women, 
were so stunningly beautiful that they easily attracted the attention of the Israelite men, who in response went to bed with them, took them to bed with them. Now these young women invited the Israelite men to the sacrificial rituals held in honor of their heathen gods. And these involved not only sacrifice to the idol gods, but also group orgies, which these men seemed to be okay with. Now these vile activities took place in the shadows of Mount Peor, which was the holy hill of Baal, Baal's dwelling place, if you will, the same place from which Balaam had spoken those four blessings against his will, those blessings that came from God. In participating in these activities, Israel broke not only the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, but also the first and the second, you shall have no other gods, and you shall not bow down or worship an idol. And God, God the righteous judge, burning in anger, ordered the death penalty for the leaders of the people. These leaders were sentenced to death because they failed to stop the people from their continual sinning. Through their office as judge, they represented the people, which made the judges themselves guilty of the people's sin of idolatry. And then, and then to make things even worse, make matters even worse, Israel's judges hesitated in carrying out God's command to kill those who were worshiping Baal. Maybe they thought, as we sometimes do, that if they didn't do anything, it would all blow over. It would all pass away. But it didn't. It's evident. Evident that these men, these leaders of Israel, Israel's judges, weren't terribly excited about preserving God's honor, nor were they in a hurry to purify his people. So God, taking things into his own hands, caused a plague, a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. Now verse 6 draws a repulsive picture for us. There was a pandemic raging through the camp. We know about pandemics. It was raging through the camp. The Israelites were feeling firsthand the anger of God against her sin. And there were righteous people who had gathered together standing outside of the tabernacle, weeping, weeping in sorrow, weeping because of their sin, weeping because their loved ones had died. And into that scene, into that scene of sadness and sorrow comes Zimri, the leader of a tribe of Simeon, of a family from the tribe of Simeon, with his arm around this young Midianite woman. Now, don't get caught up in the change of nationality here between Moabite to Midianite. See, by now, Balak had joined, had joined forces with the Midianites who also wanted to stop the Israelites. They joined together to stop the Israelites from conquering their land too, so the Midianites and their women were also involved with the Moabites and their women. What was Zimri thinking about here anyway? He knew, he knew exactly what was going on. He knew why all of those people were there, standing in his way to his tent, standing there outside of, of the tent of meeting in the tabernacle. He knew that God was angry because of Israel's sin, yet in front of God and Moses and all of the people, he took, he took this heathen woman into his tent to have sex with her, to commit adultery with her. His shameless action shows how far Israel had fallen. They had fallen to the point where sin was no longer sin. Guilt was no longer felt. 
And shame, shame was an unknown emotion. And we have to admit that Balaam's plan was a raging success. The prophet Hosea explains Israel's sin of unfaithfulness. He explains it from a different point of view than you and I often have. He explains it from God's point of view. In Hosea chapter 9, God says, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. In other words, he's saying, when I found Israel, it was a beautiful thing. They were like sweet, tender fruit. He continues, it was like seeing early fruit on the fig tree. Wonderful, great people. God chose them and his own. But he continues, but when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile, as vile as the thing they loved. How sad it is, how very, very sad. Even, even before Israel set foot into the promised land, they had slipped into worshiping the local idol god, Baal. Now Hosea, Hosea used this illustration of marriage to, dis, to describe the covenant relationship between Israel and between her god. Using, using his image as a litmus test, we would have to say that Israel was unfaithful, an unfaithful bride to her husband. Not once, but many times at Mount Peor. And we see, in our text, we see Moab under the direction of Balaam seducing Israel into breaking her marriage vows again, which is to say Israel broke her covenant relationship with God. Until now, till this point, God and Israel had been on sort of a honeymoon, a honeymoon that began when, when Israel received her, her glorious freedom after she was released from the bondage of, of Egypt. Ever since God had delivered her from Egypt, he had protected Israel like a groom protects his new bride. Think of it, every morning Israel was served a breakfast of manna in bed. Well, not exactly in bed, but they didn't have to fix it. It was there. And God was happy with Israel as happy as a bridegroom is happy with his new bride. Time and time again, God had sung the old love songs that were still new because this love, this love relationship was still new. From the mouth of wicked Balaam, God had told his people in Numbers 23, verse 9, I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves as one of the nations. These people were already set apart. That's how God wanted them to be. He noticed that. He loved them for that. A little farther along in Numbers 23, verse 21, no misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The sound of the king is among them. Again, he was happy with Israel. And in Numbers 24, may those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. But now the honeymoon was over. Israel had broken her marriage vows and had committed adultery against the Lord God Almighty. Before we condemn the Israelites and pat ourselves on the back, because we're not at all like that, perhaps we should take a closer look at ourselves. Who among us, who among us can honestly say they've never chased after another God like Israel has chased? had chased after the women of Moab or Midian? Who among us can say that they've always been 100% faithful 
to Jesus, 100%. Who can say that? Who among us can say they've never bowed down before the idol of self or the idol of money or, or of pleasure or of glory? If pressed for the truth, we would have to admit that we too, every one of us, have broken our marriage vow. We too have broken the covenant that God established with us. Oh, in, this, in this story, I see four lessons for us to learn. First of all, we need to be reminded that covenant breaking is very, very serious. It's a very, very serious thing. Covenant breaking of any kind is always worthy of suffering and worthy of death. In this passage, we see 24,000 dying as a result of the plague. And the man Zimri, the one who caused all of this, who sinned while, while Israel wept, he too, he also died for his sins. He didn't, he didn't escape. In our world today, covenant breaking is still worthy of death. I'm talking now about eternal death. And each one of us, each one of us is guilty. Which means that each one of us deserves the very worst. But, but, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that he realized our situation and realized our inability to pull ourselves out of it. And he sent Jesus Christ to this world to take our sin and our guilt upon himself. He did for us what the leaders of Israel were not willing to do for the people. He delivered us, delivered us once and for all from our sins. That's the first lesson. Covenant breaking is very, very serious. And we're guilty of it. But thanks be to God, he sent, he sent Jesus. So our sins are forgiven. And we are loved. Lesson number two is that the enemies of God and his people will one day be destroyed. Now that's good news. We don't like to think about people dying, being put to death. But it's good news that the enemies of God will one day be destroyed. Look at verses 16 and 17, if you have your Bibles open. There we read, the Lord said to Moses, Treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them, because they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the affair of Peor. And in chapter 31, we see the results of that. There we read, They fought against Midian, they being the Israelites, fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man, totally annihilated. They are no more. Among their victims were the five kings of Midian. Those were the five kings that had banded together to put the evil curse on Israel. We also read these words in that verse, in that chapter. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. The man who caused the problem. The man who came up with the idea of, of seducing Israel. He too died. And the Israelites captured the Midianite women and children and took all the Midianite herds and flocks and goods as plunder. They burned all the towns where the Midianites had settled, as well as all their camps. They took all the plunder and spoils, including the people and the animals, and brought the captives and spoils and plunder to Moses and Eliezer the priest and the Israelite army at their camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. So what God did for those who hated him and his people in the Old Testament, 
you will also do to those who hate him and his people today. The answer to question and answer 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism confirms that for us. It states there, all his enemies and mine, he, God, will condemn to everlasting punishment. That's the second lesson. God punishes sinners. Third lesson for us in this story reminds us that God's people are called to be a holy people. I'm talking now about everyone in this room. We are called to be a holy people. We are called to be a separate people. We are called to be different from the world. We're not to conform to the ways of the world, and the reason for this call to separation is because God wants us, God wants his people to be a light to the nations and a lamp to those who walk in darkness. In other words, we, you and I, everyone here, has been set aside to serve, to serve him. That's the third lesson. We are set aside for a purpose to serve him. Fourth and finally, we learn that God wants his people to be filled with a holy jealousy for the Lord. When Phinehas saw Zimri, the man of Israel, enter the camp with his arm around this Midianite woman while the rest of the assembly of Israel was weeping and begging for forgiveness for their idol worship, he could not restrain himself. He couldn't hold back any longer. He had seen enough. He had heard enough. He knew enough to last him for a lifetime. And he was filled with a holy, passionate jealousy for the Lord God Almighty. He was cut to the heart by the people's unfaithfulness. So, so taking a spear, he followed Zimri and this woman into Zimri's tent. And he took his spear and he drove it through both the Midianite man, and through the Israelite man, rather, Zimri, and the Midianite woman as they lay one on top of the other in bed. And the Lord praised his zeal. The Lord praised his zeal. In fact, God said that it was a zeal of, of Phinehas that made atonement for all of Israel, that caused him to forgive their sins. In other words, what Phinehas did in shedding blood for sin stopped God from totally destroying his people right then and there. Congregation, what we need today is more people like Phineas. We need people who are filled with a holy jealousy for God. Now please understand, I'm not suggesting in any way, to any extent, that we go around killing people with, with swords and spears who disobey God or ruin people's lives. That's not what I'm calling you to do. Not at all. God will take care of that. We don't have to. It's mine to avenge, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 32. That's his business, not ours. Instead, instead, we need to be people who can no longer remain quiet about sin and evil. People are willing to take a stand for the sake of God and his honor. Ann Heldershot, professor of sociology at the University of San Diego, boldly uses in the title of her book a word that many no longer dare speak. The title of the book is The Politics of Deviance. And the word that she dares to use isn't the word politics. We know that's tossed around freely and cheaply nowadays. It's all over, even in churches, politics is. No, no, it's the word deviance that she dares to use. 
She says, and I quote, we have become reluctant to label behaviors deviant. Drug abuse, promiscuity, abortion, and even homosexual acts are all behaviors that in the past were viewed as deviant. Today, in many cases, these behaviors have been normalized. The power to label deviant behavior has moved away from the religious realm and been seized by influential interests or advocacy groups. Women's groups and gay rights organizations, for instance, now have the ability to silence speech by those with whom they disagree. Healthcare professionals and advocates have succeeded in medicalizing drug abuse and other behaviors. Many behaviors that in the past were viewed as deviant and disruptive or eccentric and simply bad, in other words, deviant, are now being relabeled or medicated. Fact is, sometimes, sometimes even Christians contribute to this deviance. Here's how that happens. When something happens in our world or in our society, we wait to see what the cultural experts say about it. And if what they say seems to make a little bit of sense, so it seems to be okay, we give it sort of a little Christian pat on the back, and along with the world, we adopt that mixed view. We call it okay. As a result, we get to the place where we're willing to say that things we know are wrong and have known are wrong for years maybe, maybe aren't as wrong as we thought they were. And in fact, maybe they're almost right. The result is that which is good we call evil. That which is evil and deviant we end up calling good. And what's especially sad is that there are some religious leaders in our world today who have become reluctant to speak publicly about morals at all because they don't want to lose followers. But the so-called progressives in our world show no hesitancy. They stand ready and willing to redefine deviance for us. And that's why Christ calls us, calls you and me to be like Phineas. He calls us to be a barricade, a wall, a blockade against these and other sins and sinners. I'd like to report to you this morning that we're doing a good job of that. I'm going to let you draw your own conclusions. How well are we doing? I'm reminded of what the prophet Ezekiel says in chapter 22, verse 30 of the of the prophecy that carries his name, the book that carries his name. The context was the evil in the land of Israel. And God, through Ezekiel, said, I looked for a man among you who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. I found none. No one. Not anyone who would stand in the gap for God. Not anyone who would stand up for him. Isn't that pathetic? Isn't that sad? In the days of Ezekiel, God could not find one willing to be zealous like Phineas, zealous for him. No one willing to be jealous for the Lord's sake. Now the question we have to wrestle with today is would he find anyone today? Will he find anyone willing to stand up for him against sin today in our life? One last thing I want to draw your attention to is standing behind Balaam 
and his plan to destroy the covenant was Satan. That's quite obvious, isn't it? It was Satan that was involved in all of this. And the bad news is Satan continues to do the very same thing today that he did back then. In the days of Israel, he still lures and tempts and entices and seduces with sins of the flesh. Satan still tries and is often successful in destroying the lives of the people of God. But the good news is, the good news is we don't have to fear. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be bogged down with that thought. We don't have to be saddened about that thought because we have someone even stronger and better and more faithful than Finney has to stand in the gap for us. That someone is Jesus. The world around us may try to drag us down with them. Sometimes we will follow. But we have Jesus that stands in the gap for us and says, this is the line, not in the sand. This is the barricade. This is as far as you're going to go. And he forgives us He's so merciful and tender. He forgives us even if we should slip into some of those pathways and come back to me. He forgives us for our sins. You see, when he shed his blood on the cross, he made atonement, as I mentioned earlier, once and for all for our sins. He doesn't have to die again if we sin today or tomorrow. It's been done once for all. We are saved by grace through faith in him. And so we can live. We can live happily, but concerned happily, but concerned under that promise of eternal life. People of God, may our lives show our gratitude every moment of every day for that great deliverance. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word of warning that comes from the ancient past, and yet that was that we were reminded of in the not-quite-that-distant past. Lord, thank you for this message that shows the importance of standing up for you, the importance of not being a Christian only in name and not only occasionally, but at all times and in all places, standing up for what is right, standing up for your teachings. Lord, to do that, we need knowledge of what you're teaching us. So, Lord, help us to continue to worship together. Help us to continue to read your, your word day after day so we can learn more and more about you and your will for our lives. And Lord, when we are called upon, may we stand firm between the evils of this world and the correctness of you and the righteousness of you. For, Lord, we know that we were made righteous through your Son, Jesus Christ. We really... We really have no other choice, so help us not to be reluctant to stand up, even if it means change for us, even if it means we may not be well-loved or well-liked by everyone. May we stand up for what is right, so that your name may be praised and you may be glorified, that we may carry out our task here to bring glory and joy to you. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. A hymn of response is hymn number 466, hymn 466. Our faith, my faith.